and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound, and I'm filling in for Pippa this week while she is on holiday. I've had a really exciting week, showing is back on the road, lots of reports in the diary for summer, and I've actually welcomed a new pony to my yard myself, so yeah, I've had a really exciting week. Our interview this week is with horse and hound columnist and judge Stuart Hollings, who talks about some of his career highlights, both in the saddle, as a show producer and as a showing judge. There's been lots of highlights and I think I've been involved with over 30 Horse of the Year show winners from 1975 when we first started at Blue Slate Farm and when I retired from producing in 2011. I'll also be chatting to our news team about young riders' mental health and calls from riding schools to change the licensing system. Finally, personal trainer Katie Bleakman talks about balancing horses, fitness and a social life. We know for all of us that do horses, one of the biggest, biggest things I hear is I don't have time, I'm too busy, I have to do X, Y, Z. And part of my ethos as a coach is really thinking about the holistic whole body approach. More from Katie later. Let's crack on with the podcast. So this week, we're very honoured to be joined by our guest, Stuart Hollings, who is a well-known judge, former show producer, and he's actually a horse and hound columnist and reporter. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm nice and warm in my uh, in my lounge. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really well, thank you. And I'm also very cosy uh, sat here. So, yes, Stuart has been and he continues to be a major contributor to showing. He's dedicated his life to the sport and he began his career as a producer alongside his brother, Nigel. And together, Team Hollings won countless accolades, all the major shows, and they really were the ones to beat, you know, pony classes alike. So, Stuart, please could you take us um, right back to those early years in showing? Where did showing begin for you? Well, actually... My uh, connection with horses was all by accident. Uh, my brother went to look for a next door neighbour to play football and uh, he, his mother told me he was at the riding stables which was situated behind our garden wall. Um, and um, so my brother went to investigate. So he, he ended up, even though he's four years younger than me, he ended up actually riding uh, a lot earlier, um, even though it was like happy hacking. And it's only when he brought a leaflet, a pamphlet about the aims and objectives for the Pony Club, mm-hmm. I got, in, I got um, involved a bit more. So I, I, I started sort of hacking out um, at this riding school, which we didn't realise was beh- at the back of our, our garden, and this, behind this big stone wall. And she was very good. Josephine Motterhead was the owner of the stables and she did everything by the book. So on reflection, it was the ideal place to learn what I call basic horsemanship. Um, and she, the funny thing, she took me, my first recollection of a showing class, even though I didn't understand it at all, <laughs> she, she took me on a day trip to Royal Lancashire Show, which was held in Stanley Park at Blackpool. And I was sat and I was mesmerised watching this class of show ponies in the main ring. And I didn't know what a show pony was or anything. And uh, I, because we'd got some horse and hound yearbooks later on, 
which were published every year, I actually checked which ponies I was watching. Mm -hmm. And it was a class of 12 two show ponies. And, and there were three coed cop ponies. One was Ballard, one was Paddog, and one was Budai. So that was my first introduction to showing. And who would have thought, years later, I would have been involved in... in uh, pony production um, but it was much later on a pony club visit to the veteran unit at Liverpool University that the district commissioner for Blackburn Pony Club Dr Sutherland who uh, who was driving the car and interestingly bred a horse of the year show winner himself a first ridden winner called Doolittle Damocles and he suggested because I was sort of getting on a bit I was about 13 or 14 I should really start having some private lessons at Reedwood Stables mm -hmm. owned by Pat and Richard Atkins and um, that sound advice brought us into direct contact with the showing world but we actually competed locally from the Reedwood base and, and it was a terrific learning curve we had lots and lots of riding clubs that were into showing and a lot of what are called little shows that have, uh, sadly a lot of them have gone now um, and funnily enough at this time, because Reed, Reedwood's spring show always used to take place at the Reedwood base, I actually wrote my first report, which was uh, very much like um, um, the style of Andy Winter Brown, who was the main reporter in Horse and Hound. Mm -hmm. And I never thought in my wildest dreams I would be writing for Horse and Hound some 15 years later. <laughs> so the interesting thing was, even though I didn't come from a, a, a horsey background, Competing with animals was not as daunting as it should have been because um, we had the family had some experience with greyhound racing. My grandfather was one of the leading owners at the time and had 24 dogs mm -hmm. in training around the country. And we used to have two or three at home to look after. Uh, Nigel and I used to exercise them before and after school. And apart from being able to hold on tight if the dogs ever spotted a cat or a rabbit, we'd learnt more importantly about feeding fitness regimes and looking after limbs and feet which which is no different than producing show horses today mm. um, but I think what happened in 1972 that was a milestone year for us because um, we had a lovely show pony called Tawi Valley Chiff Chaff and I was too big for him and Nigel was too small so he went down to Davina Whiteman's uh, to be to be ridden by Claire Stock and he was champion at the Royal Show that season. And we followed with our ponies um, afterwards. And, and of course, that's when everything took off. We, were, we started showing at uh, major level. And then we bought our farm in 1974. So that's when we were based at Blue Slate um all, mm -hmm. all together so that's how that's how we started showing and um and it brought us to blue slate stables brilliant and, and as a competitor Stuart have you got a particular highlight or two you could just kind of yeah tell us about well obviously with the wonderful animals we've had and the good riders and the lovely owners lots and lots uh but I would think seeing my brother first winning at Horse of the Year in 1972, mm -hmm. and then my niece, Alexandra, winning there four times. Um, as a breeder, we weren't big breeders, but uh, one of our uh, breeding uh, won the 15-hand show to Burnley class at Horse of the Year in 2009. And she was out of a... Um, 
another homebred 15 hand shown to pony mare which had finished second in 2000 so the fact that actually we bred and produced a horse of the year show winner um i think that has to be a highlight mm. um and um I won a, a very, very good small hunter class at the Great Yorkshire in the mid-70s. And uh, I beat two of my favourite small hunters. I mean, I think there were about 28 in the class. And I was pulled in top and I couldn't believe it. And David Tatlow and Vin Tulson were in second and third. And I actually stopped top. Uh, I don't think they were too pleased because my mare was more of a riding horse type, mm -hmm. looking back now. But there weren't riding horses in, in, in those days uh, at sh uh, in the show ring. And, um, and these were both fantastic mini middleweights. And uh, you can tell what stamp she was because she went and bred um, the hack of the year, small hack of the year and champion hack of the year in 1989. And she was the granddam of another hack of the year, uh, Jennifer's Diary, which I think was champion at Horse of the Year in 2001. So that was my first big win beating the pros. Mm -hmm. um, but I also beat Nigel once at Cheshire County in the hack class. He was on, he was on a very big winner, pulled in top. I was pulled in third on an animal which was more typey, but actually didn't ride as well or go as well. And um, the owner went in to look after Nigel. I was left by myself. I had to take the saddle off myself, brush the animal with a brush. I borrowed a brush from somebody standing in fourth. And uh, I went up to top, much to <laughs> Nigel's dismay, and actually finished champion that day. So to beat brother, who is four years younger than me, I will always remember that day. But I also went into showing a bit of in hand as well, because I had a, I co-owned a, a very good 12-2 stallion called Leslie Quince. And because of that, I ended up leading uh, the foal of four Horse of the Year show in hand winning brood mares. Um, but the, even though the other three, three of the mares ended up featuring in the championship, uh, there was one pony mare that actually the two horses were champion in reserve. And but she was called Culross Maid of Honour. She won the pony section. Mm -hmm. But I think that meant more to me because I'd produced her to win under saddle in 1986. So that was a special moment for me. The fact I'd, I'd sort of been involved with the winning under saddle and in hand, mm -hmm. um, you see. But overall, like I said, there have been lots of highlights. And I think I've been involved with over 30 Horse of the Year show winners uh, from 1975 when we first started at Blue Slate Farm. And when I retired from producing in 2011. Wow, quite a tally. Brilliant. And Stuart, you're also a very a very active judge. And, and recently I've been enjoying following social media posts about some of the new judges who have been appointed to the to the 2022 British Show Pony Society panel. So it's exciting times for them. Um, yeah, so Stuart, how did your judging career begin and how long have you been involved with judging? Um, actually, it was, I'm on seven panels now and that's enough. Mm -hmm. I keep on being asked when I go on more. But I, I think if, if you, I, I'm not the type of judge who would like to go out every weekend. I think I've become very jaded. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you always want to go into the ring with a fresh eye and, and enjoy it. I mean, if I'm getting up at four o'clock in the morning, I've got to be able to enjoy it. Um, and every show experience is so different. Mm. And I've always been fascinated 
with judging, uh, I remember once I went to Southport Flower Show instead of going to Ponies UK because there was some show jumping on at that show. But I ended up walking round some of the uh, marquees and reading the critiques by the judges why something had won or hadn't won. And also, I've always been fascinated uh, by listening and watching the judges' critiques on television programmes, whether it's Bake Off or Strictly mm-hmm. or Design Jewellery or, you know, design uh, Designing Rooms. And so I've always been fascinated. But I, I, I actually became a BSBS judge at the age of 21. I was recommended by the BSBS Area 2B, so I didn't do any probationary judging. I enjoyed my end NPS, my National Society probation judging, mm-hmm. a great deal with three very experienced people and Joanna McInnes, Gwen Ashworth, and uh, Anne Finesse. But I've been a BSBS judge since I was 21. So that, that's how I started um, judging. Brilliant. And, and do you have a favourite show you've judged at, kind of a favourite appointment? And, and have you ever been abroad with your judging? Uh, Yes, I mean, um, I I do like judging at Windsor Mm -hmm. and I do like uh, the East Anglian shows because they're very old fashioned shows and they've got a presence pavilion and lawns and beautiful, beautiful rings. But I have I have judged in South Africa and Australia as well. Um, I think I've been to Australia four times and South South Africa twice and um, And what you've got to do when you go abroad, you've got to have the confidence, which is a big thing about being a judge. You've got to have the confidence to adapt the different Mm. processes and the breeds. I mean, for instance, in South Africa, I judged Neugidaks, which I I think the best way to describe them were like Irish drafts, part bred Welsh types. And then the Bustinos, which were more like Anglo Arabs, part bred Arabs. Um, And... um, I was the first person to judge in 1992 um, the Grand National Show in Sydney. And it was just before the Sydney Royal Show, which used to run for about two weeks over the Easter period. So it was good timing because this Grand National Show was for all the state champions to mm-hmm. meet. And th- that was, I was the first one. And I, always, I made the mistake because I had to get back quickly after the show to, to run my second North of England spring show, I actually had some free time first. And the Australians do like to keep you un, under supervision and they don't like you, the fright of you bumping into a competitor. Mm. Um, so I was, basi- I was basically, not under house arrest, because I had some uh, good sort of times at the races and all things, but all to go and visit the studs and things like that, which I would have enjoyed, um, that was taken off the agenda. And um, and so I was the trailblazer because everybody else who followed me afterwards from England um, actually did the uh, judging first and then had a nice sort of like break the second week. And uh, I remember because I was in the house an awful lot with my hostess, she kept on giving me lots and lots of magazines to read. So the irony was when I actually came to my judging um, and it, it was an absolute doddle of a class to judge because... You only pick two. So say there were 20 in the class. You just had to pick the champion of the reserve and a second reserve in case there was a positive dope test with the first two. So it was it was so easy. But the irony was because I was they were supplying me with the magazine called Hoof and Horns, which was the equivalent to Horse and Hound. Mm -hmm. 
I was take, soaking up all this information. So many of the horses that came in front of me, I knew where they qualified, where they were from, what they were <laughs> called. So I thought that was the irony of the whole thing. But the funny thing was, the week before uh, judging, uh, my hostess had a hack being shown at Castle Hill Show, which was on the outskirts of Sydney. And she said to me, you know, you can't come anywhere near the horses. So I actually uh, spent two hours on the big wheel near the dog judging. So um, so I was able, when, when the big wheel was on ground level, I was able to keep an eye on the dog judging. But when I was sort of in the skies, I was able to keep an eye on the horse judging as well. <laughs> <laughs> which I, which, which, I didn't, which I didn't actually tell them I'd done it. But I mean, what was I was at a show. What was I supposed to do for half a day, you see? So... Uh, and when I um, judged in uh, South Africa, it was quite it was quite unusual. Uh, there were some different uh, different types of classes. I couldn't believe there was a working show horse class, and it was very much like a handy horse class. But the thing is, all the top horses and champions went in it. And I remember once the top hack that had just won the hack championship the year before, the the year before and the day before. Um, he had to do a show um, lifting a basket off this oil drum, then then do a, a figure of eight around this oil drum, put the basket back down and then gallop through a gazebo. And, wow. and then I, I, I couldn't believe it. I thought these top show horses, I mean, you'd never get them to do that in, in, in our country at all. Mm, brilliant. And and just to kind of finish off now, Stuart, there's, as we said, there's a few new judges, um, you know, making their way through the ranks now. Have you got any tips for these new judges? And are there any particular lessons you've learned along the way? You know, could you expel some of those pearls of wisdom for those new judges? Yes, I mean, I mean, the, the two two main lessons I've learned it was it was in 1984. I was at City of Leicester show and this um, competing, and I saw this lead rein pony uh, walk by with a red rosette on, and I was judging the lead rein classes at the BSVS Championships like about 10 days later and I saw this pony I thought oh I don't like that at all you know it was very sort of like well section A type and and I thought oh that's one fair enough 10 days later in the main ring at the East of England show with about 60 or 70 forward because in those days at the BSVS Championships there was one lead ring class one fourteen two show pony not like today where you've got the blue ribbon the classic security the you know red division and all this lot and so i had sick between 60 and 70 ponies and i was by myself and i remember we had three lineups and and when the uh, first trot out was done i would put one two or three behind my back and the mm-hmm. steward would then put them in the first lineup second lineup and this pony this gray pony which i'd almost dismissed um the so 10 days earlier won the class and so it just goes to show you the only way you can judge is from the middle of the ring it just, that i learned that lesson early on and another lesson i did learn if you're judging color a big class of colored animals don't change the rain because the, the you can so have in your mind and i think you should be able to assess a class early on they change the rain and they can look completely different. Mm-hmm. I know they haven't changed, 
uh, and the riders haven't changed. Nothing's changed because it's a very visual sport. All of a sudden, an animal that looked had a lovely front, when it changes the rain, it goes on the left rein, it can have sort of a, a dark splodge over its shoulder and somehow it doesn't look the same animal. So I've learnt now in a big class, don't, when you're judging colours, don't change the rein and then you can keep track of the animals and it's amazing how many other judges have told me and but it just goes to show you how you've they've got to be pulled in the, the pulling to me is one of the most important things um when you when you're judging you've got you've got to have a pulling for a start um for instance when i um judged the show ponies at the royal international in 2019 the 14-2 class, we had two on, on equal marks. And so I said to my coaches, well, this is easy because we've pulled one in fourth and the one in 13th. So the one that's been pulled in fourth has to have the plus next to it. And that, that that's how we sorted out the time. But I remember a qualifier at Spillers Cumbria years ago, there was a judge and there was a pony on the on the go round that was very naughty. We were pulled in top with our 14-2 and this other pony that had been naughty was placed bottom. And it obviously couldn't cope with going round in company, which is a very, very important thing. And um, same with galloping in country with show, uh, galloping in company with show hunter ponies. And we, we won the class, but when we looked at the marks, this pony that had been so naughty on the go round had been pulled in bottom and it had settled obviously came out and did a very nice show and went up to second which shouldn't have happened so that's why the pulling is so important yeah. and we are we only won by one mark but you see if you're pulling something in bottom you've got to take into account the go round mm -hmm. and obviously the pony had settled it was quite a big class and the judge had forgotten and of course it came out and did this beautiful show after some of the naughtier ones just mm. above it and so it looked even better and got a very high score and came up to second and qualified for horse of the year show so I, that's another lesson I learned. But the main thing is, is to, to really, whether you're with a co-judge or you, when you're uh, judging children, I always ask, how old is the pony to the child, mm -hmm. the lead rein pony? I, I very rarely speak to the handler with the lead reins, but I actually um, speak to the child, how old's your pony? And often give me a nice show. And to say, and it relaxes them. Because some of the people think these judges are like ogres in the middle of it. <laughs> and if you can show that you're sort of human, <laughs> and, and it's the same with the co-judges. I've never, ever had to get a referee judge because I've always tried to get on with my co-judge. And, the, and there's, a, there's a reason for this, because if you get on really well and they're enjoying themselves and everybody's relaxed, there's more, more chance of you actually getting your point across than if, if you sort of if there's any antagonism between the the judges. So I've always when you go in the ring and judge, enjoy it and relax. And and things can happen which if you're not focusing, things can happen just within two seconds. And and you've got to be able to think on your feet. And every show experience, every judging experience is different. You never know what's going to happen. Particularly like the old adage in the pony classes, never work with children and animals. <laughs> uh, and that, that sort of thing. But no, there are lots, lots of tips. But the main thing is to enjoy it.
Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Stuart. And I'm sure there's some great tips and, and anecdotes our future judges will, will take home before the season starts. But thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. For our news review this week, I'm joined by my colleagues, Horse and Hound News Editor, Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all good, thank you. It's March, it's spring, hurrah. <laughs> it's also going to pour for the next week, but you can't have everything. <laughs> no, the, the sun's shining today. That's uh, absolutely lovely. And we're also joined by Becky Murray, our senior news writer. Hi, Becky. How's everything with you? Hello, I'm good. Yes, the sun is shining up in Scotland too. I feel when like the 1st of March just brings that kind of relief. I feel like we're mm-hmm. nearly there. <laughs> so yeah, looking forward to spring and doing more for my horse at long last. Perfect. So Becky, we'll come to you first. Uh, this week you've been looking at young riders' mental health and the Pony Club's announcement that they're to be increasing focus on mental health and well-being. Can you tell us a bit more about this, please? Yes, so I had some interesting conversations with a number of people about young rider mental health and sort of the age this can be approached from. And this led me to speaking to the Pony Club who have plans to, like you say, increase their men- uh, focus on mental health this year. Now, I spoke to the Pony Club's chief executive, Marcus Capel, who is also formerly a head teacher and it's a topic he feels very strongly about. He really emphasised that it is important to be discussing mental health and well-being from a young age and the Pony Club can sort of play a part in this. What he did mention is when it comes to younger children, it could be sort of introducing the topic of mental health might start with simple conversations around what makes them happy and just that it's okay to talk. And what is the Pony Club putting into practice um, to increase its focus on mental health and well-being? Well, the Pony Club already has a wellbeing achievement badge, which touches on things like kindness, uh, respect, and generally looking after yourself. But they are also in the process of reviewing their tests to incorporate more on mental health. And they're looking at introducing mental health specific badges Mm -hmm. this year too. And the charity Riders Minds is looking to work more closely with the Pony Club too. Can you tell us a bit about what they do? Yes, so Riders Minds is a bespoke resource for all equestrians, and that's young people too. They have a dedicated text and web chat service for people who are needing help and a really brilliant website with so much advice and information on about mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I spoke to the co-founder, Victoria Wright, and she believes it's really important to educate people of all ages about this. Riders Minds is planning to, like you say, work with uh, the Pony Club more and some of the other governing bodies too, and just to help support them in providing sort of more mental health support for members. The charity is also campaigning for more mental health education in colleges and the apprentice scheme too. So hopefully we're going to see an increased offering and really just keep people talking about this because it's just such an important topic. It certainly is. And thank you so much for that, Becky. Um, Eleanor, coming to you next to discuss some news regarding a nationwide call from riding schools uh, for changes to the licensing system. Can you give us a quick rundown on what's been going on? 
Yeah, so these these are the the licensing regulations that were brought in in 2018, and uh, and obviously riding schools have to be licensed, and the, the local authority will send round a licensing officer to inspect the riding school, um, and that's obviously absolutely fine. And the riding schools are saying yes, you know that's fine. We know that needs to be done, and we know that we need to show that the horses are being looked after. But they're saying the problem is the system isn't fit for purpose one riding school owner told us because they're saying you know obviously the vets should check the horses which is a separate thing but she they don't understand what they call the bureaucracy and the red tape and that they have to spend more time on paperwork than they do teaching mm -hmm. um and you know the one riding school owner we spoke to said they nearly didn't get their top rating because they couldn't they didn't have paperwork to prove that they'd been mucking out and as she said, you know, you could look over the stable door and see if it's clean or not. Mm. And what are the main changes to the system that riding school owners would, would like to see generally? Well, I think, uh, as you know, as, as we've just been saying, that the the major thing is sort of less paperwork, less red tape. Uh, one riding school owner that we spoke to said, would it work to have someone like either the British Horse Society or the, the Association of British Riding Schools doing the inspections? Because then they are horsey people who know sort of how it should work. Uh, we did. I did speak to a trustee of the ABRS who said, you know, that would be very difficult because you, apart from anything else, you'd need a law change and, and he thinks that's unlikely um, but there is going to be a review of these regulations next year 2023 so that'll be five years after they come in and it's thought this could be an opportunity to, to change things for the better because without riding schools we haven't got an industry very true so thank you for the update guys and thank you for taking some time out of your day to, to chat to us today So now we're going over to Katie Bleakman. Katie is an online fitness coach and personal trainer specializing in equestrian athletes. Katie has evented herself up to a very high level, winning team silver at the Eventing Pony Europeans. And now riders all over the world can benefit from her online coaching program, Event Rider Fitness. Over to you, Katie. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about how to live that fitness lifestyle. And what I mean by that is when we're talking about fitness and nutrition or getting stronger or maybe gaining or losing weight, we often focus on just the nutrition or the training side of things. And training and fitness is so, so much more than that. All of your lifestyle markers and really kind of enhancing and living this lifestyle of being that person that goes to the gym three, four times a week or make sure that they have eight hours of sleep a night is also important so that you can ultimately start to feel your absolute best and again, get the most out of your horses, but equally it's going to give you that longevity, that energy for life and you actually have the ability to balance everything that is going on in your life and we know for all of us that do horses, one of the biggest, biggest things I here I would be so rich if I had a pound for every time a rider said this is I don't have time I'm too busy I have to do xyz and at the end of the day having horses whether that is working full-time with your horses or running a livery yard or having two horses around a uh, maybe highly stressful corporate job or a managing role it's a hard life it's a complete balancing act and at the end of the day a lot of riders will find that they don't have a social life they feel like they don't have any time for themselves they have a lack of energy they don't feel 
feel great physically in themselves or about themselves and it's making sure that we fit in all these areas of life again and part of my ethos as a coach is really thinking about the holistic whole body approach so like i said it's not just the training and the nutrition side of things it's considering okay like what's your work-life balance like do you spend all day thinking about the horses and then all evening thinking about or talking about horses or discussing business do you uh, only get like five six hours of sleep a night are you feeling really stressed all the time and all these areas are so so important to consider if you are wanting to become fitter or stronger or just generally happier and start to live this fitter lifestyle so in order to be able to boost your energy and levels and also have energy for the things you want to do, whether that is coming home in the evenings and you want to have enough energy to be able to uh, get your horse ready, load him up, take him out in the box and go for a lesson, or maybe it's to come home and just actually sit on the floor and play with your kids after a long day. I've had clients before that get home, they work all day, they have a very, very stressful, demanding job. They then come home, they do the horse quickly, and then by the time it comes to sitting down and having dinner with the family, or looking after their children they're absolutely knackered and that is not a place you want to be and knowing your priorities of where you want to expend your energy and what is important to you is so important because if you know that you want to make the most of your evenings with your horse or your child you're going to be far more inclined to make sure that you're doing all of the things that are going to make you feel good and as a trainer I think it's really easy that we get caught up in this perception of being a bit of a fitness freak as such like training all the time only drinking water um you know not going out and that's not the concept at all like obviously yes if you go out every weekend and you have late nights or you drink a lot or you eat McDonald's then in the long run that's not going to benefit you in a positive way and you're probably going to struggle to maintain a healthy lifestyle but for instance I know this spring I've got a couple of hump balls coming up and it's not an issue for me I now look forward to them I used to slightly dread them because I think oh god I'm going to eat so much food I'm going to probably drink too much I'm going to feel really rough the next day and then I'm going to have to feel like I'm going to have to work it off but once you get away from that mindset and just get into the mind of living a healthier lifestyle it actually makes your social occasions way more enjoyable and we all know when you know we're busy with the horses and work we don't get that much time to hang out with our friends or go and do things like get dressed up and go to a ball so we want to feel amazing in ourselves not just from an aesthetic point of view and look in the mirror and think yeah I look good but also actually have the energy to spend time with your friends and feel good and you know at the end of the day if you have a really busy week and you can't make it to the gym for a few days that's not the end of the world um, I think it's important to realize that training and nutrition there's never an emergency in these situations and what I mean by that is you know if life gets super busy or as we all know with horses, sometimes we do have emergencies. Your training and nutrition can take a back seat for a few days or, you know, a, a, a couple of weeks if necessary, and then you can get back to it. But it's having this balance all around so that, you know, you make use of the time that you have. Um, you prioritize what matters to you. Things like prioritizing your sleep, that's going to make you feel so, so much better. Your sleep affects your mood. It affects your stress levels. It affects your weight. Um, it really, really does affect your, if your goals are weight loss or weight gain, it will hugely affect that. Um, if you're lacking in sleep, your hunger levels are going to be all over the place your leptin and ghrelin hormones are completely imbalanced um, and that can really affect your hunger levels sleep's really important for recovery and healing from injury as well so you know if you are in uh, a point where maybe you've had an injury or um, you're suffering with uh, some kind of a problem making sure that you really prioritize your sleep and manage your stress levels is so important as well and for most of us we probably end up like coming home 
get in the door in the winter, you know, half six, seven, half seven, maybe even later, and just end up chucking on Netflix, watching TV, you're knackered, you go to bed late, you're up early, and we're just stuck in this cycle. So actually thinking about what could I do to make myself feel better, also making the most of your time. That I've not got time is a very, very common response, but I challenge you to actually really think, do I not have time or am I maybe wasting time? And absolutely, you need to take half an hour now and again to watch, uh, maybe it's The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, I know I love that, on Netflix and just switch off. But at the same time, if training and getting stronger and getting fitter to ride is a priority, you need to have that balance. But it's finding that balance between doing the things that make you feel really good, like eating, um, training hard, but still enjoying life, still having a social life, and doing all of the things that make you feel good. You know, I always say this to my clients, you know that if you control of all of the controllables, so the controllables, your sleep to an extent, your food, your diet, your stress levels, your activity levels, if you control all of those things and make sure that they're as good as possible you're going to feel so so much better and if we do things that make us feel bad all the time you're just going to feel worse and I think if anything the past year 2021 has showed us all just how important it is to do things that make us feel happy make us feel good and protect our mental well-being as well as our physical and it's imperative as riders that we do this we know that the lifestyle can be hard it can be demanding and it can be a tough place at times so you know making sure that we're treating our body as we need to be and with respect making sure that we're thinking about all these lifestyle markers not just your training and nutrition is so important and in the long run it's only going to impact you your horses and your performance in a really positive manner i hope you found that episode useful and if you're looking for any more information or help with your fitness and health then feel free to check out my work at eventriderfitness.com thank you katie That's actually the end of Katie's mini series. So I hope you've enjoyed hearing from her over the past eight weeks. And thank you so much to her for joining us on the podcast. Next week, we'll hear from hunting vet Helen Van Tool of BT Vets, who has some timely advice on roughing off hunters as we near the end of the season. Our interview will be a special one ahead of the Cheltenham Festival. We'll be speaking to legendary jump jockey Barry Geraghty, who'll be taking a trip down memory lane and talking about some of his favourite Cheltenham moments and some of his greatest triumphs. Well, that's it from us for this week. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.